Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate-in-chief. Hello, everybody. It's Kurt Barnhart again, the media editor for Fertility and Sterility. I'm here with a special edition of FNS On Air. We're going to talk about the Fertility and Sterility family of journals. Fertility and Sterility is an international journal for obstetricians, gynecologists, reproductive endocrinologists, urologists, basic science, and others who treat and investigate infertility and human reproductive disorders. We want to explain these family journals to you and hopefully have you understand the literature in it, add to the literature in it, and help us review the literature that will go into it. So it's a privilege to have the Editors-in-Chief for Fertility and Sterility on the call with us. Uh, I'll start with Craig Niederberger. Craig, what do you think has contributed to the success of fertility and sterility? It's not us. It's, it's, uh, it's everybody that we've worked with um, uh, over the years. Uh, our editorial editors are spectacular in coming up with, um, with editorial uh, content, uh, describing the import of various trends in the field. Um, our associate editors are the, the backbone of peer review, and they're extraordinary. Um, our media editor is extraordinary. Uh, and uh, and everybody that uh, that works um, to peer review our articles, uh, to submit their great work to fertility and sterility, uh, this is this is really the you know the the if we've had success, this is really the reason for any success um, is really the people that we work with. Tony, I'll turn it over to you. Yes, I I concur with you. And I would like to add the fact that uh, from the very beginning, uh, we understood uh, that we should bring something new and especially take uh, advantage of the new technologies that were already available. But uh, most or, or basically all the scientific journals were published uh, in the classic way, basically in paper, printed versions, etc. So we introduced for the first time the dialogue and get got rid of the of the classical letters to the editor. Uh, we introduced the um, journal club for 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 a scientific uh, uh, journal, and also the video articles that are considered like uh, and are peer reviewed and and treated in the journal like uh, original articles. So these uh, three innovations were developed uh, over the years and uh, today are a substantial part of the journal. Hi Craig and Tony, it's Eve Feinberg. As you know, I'm one of the associate editors for FNS and really appreciate having you both on this uh, podcast and talking about the journal. I think what's so interesting to understand and I think Craig, you've spoken on this before, is what is the flow of an article? So as an author, when you submit your manuscript, um, I know as an associate editor where those manuscripts land and how they land on, on my desk, but can you walk our listeners through the process from submission 
to how that article trickles through the editors to the associate editors to the reviewers and just shed some light on what often seems to be a blind process? Sure. Um, hopefully it's not a trickle. Um, as speaking as a urologist, hopefully it's not a trickle. Um, so <laughs> a author will submit uh, an, ori an original contribution. Um, so this is not talking about our editorial content. We, we have editorial editors that generate um, our editorial content, for example, views and reviews and the fertile battle and things like that. That, that starts with, uh, with the editorial editors uh, and then those authors are selected by the editorial editors after um, discussion amongst ourselves for an original contribution that then is submitted online to the journal office. Um, and Tony and I have a fairly light touch uh, around that. If there are some problems with the manuscript, for example, um, it was retrospectively entered uh, into a clinical trials database, that sort of thing, even if it's like really wonderful, and but if it goes against those kinds of rules, and those rules are really important for the ethical conduct of research in our field, then you know we'll we'll pull it out. But typically, we'll make a decision about whether or not it should go into peer review. Uh, and then when it goes into peer review, then based on the subject material, it'll go to an associate editor who is an expert in that field. Uh, and that's really important because your article is going to be reviewed by someone who has a deep understanding of the field. And that associate editor will then choose reviewers if the associate editor feels that it should go through the, the peer review pathway. One reviewer needs to be from our editorial board of 100 or so reviewers that are on the board because we feel that they're extraordinary analytical minds in the field. And then the other reviewer can be ad hoc, not necessarily has to be ad hoc, but can be ad hoc, chosen for their expertise in that particular area for that particular paper. Uh, and then the, the, there are other reviewers that it can be brought in, but that, that's the minimum. Uh, and so then the reviewers will work with the author uh, on making the manuscript better. So if it is decided that that manuscript will then progress towards publication, then the reviewers will take a very deep dive with the author. And typically two or three revisions are necessary. And the idea there is that we wanna take a great paper and make it even greater. Uh, and then ultimately it will go on to, uh, to publication. Uh, so um, curious, Tony, do you have anything to add to that? No, basically that our acceptance rate is now around um, 12%. And most of the paper, because they have uh, such a great quality, are usually accompanied by what we call reflections. That is basically an editorial where some experts in the field uh, make interesting points. So, and altogether, to our understanding, makes a, a beautiful issue, a beautiful publication where, where you can see the, the, the original manuscript, but also the particular comments and particular points, sometimes nice criticism about the publication. Craig and Tony, can you give us an idea of the volume, um, how many articles run through and how many are in the journal? And are, is this a, a moderate journal or a big journal compared to that kind of volume? Yeah, roughly speaking, I think we receive in, uh, around 200, 250 per month. And we publish exactly 20 to 25 per issue. 
Thank you, Craig and Tony. So this is Mike Hill, the Interactive Associate in Chief. And we're very fortunate to not just have two editors in chief on this call, but to have five uh, with our three sister journals as well. So uh, Ann Steiner, Bill Catherio, and Rick Paulson, we would just love to hear from you about your new journals and, and what you want our listeners to know about your journal. Ann, let's start with you. Well, I am the editor in chief for FNS Reviews, and we are very excited to have not only people submitting wonderful review articles to FNS Reviews, but also distributing these excellent review articles uh, to our readership. We'd really like to be a resource for clinicians, scientists, and trainees by publishing really quality, comprehensive, and impartial review articles that advance a reader's understanding of a facet of reproduction. And um, I'll leave it from there. Thank you, Anne. Bill, tell us about your journal. Fantastic. So FNS Science is pretty much what you'd expect it to be. We're where the science starts. We are the area where basic science and early translational work uh, is compilated and stored so that we can form models that uh, inform us as far as how we're going to improve clinical care. So those of you who are doing straight basic science research, this is your home. FNS Science is a place you want to publish. For those of you who are looking at, for example, uh, oocyte quality or something that is related to a more basic science-y topic, not so much uh, live births, but those that are related to ways in which we can improve our current care that is more bench-type associated work, and even areas outside of bench research, but things that are going to change the way we approach uh, reproductive medicine, that's what we're looking for. Um, we can talk a little bit later, but so far we've been quite successful and uh, we continue to progress and we're looking forward to your submission. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And Rick, tell us about your journal. So FNS Reports really reminds me of fertility and sterility of yesterday. I started with fertility and sterility on the editorial advisory board, as it was called that, back in 1998. And uh, FNS used to get about 60 submissions a month, and we accepted about a third. And uh, I will tell you that FNS Reports accepts about a third of our submissions now, of which there are just north of about 20 a month. And the reason that this journal came to be, you just heard. You just heard that fertility and sterility has a 12% acceptance rate. That's a lot of really good science that has to be turned down because it's not perfect, because it doesn't have the perfect controls, because it's uh, perhaps a retrospective study design. And those are the kinds of studies that we are looking for in FNS reports. The other part of uh, starting this journal uh, was the opportunity for innovation. And I've always liked case reports. Uh, I recognize the fact that Louise Brown was a case report. The first uh, successful ICSI is a case report. All of these things, I think, are potentially very interesting. We've had some wonderful case reports. Uh, the, uh, the, the one I liked in our first issue was, uh, was from Alex Quas and the group down at UC San Diego, Evidence of Profound Ovarian Suppression. A patient who comes in for fertility preservation who'd been on birth control pills for a long time who's essentially in ovarian failure, and six months later, they're collecting 20-plus eggs from her. This is very interesting. I've never seen that. I, that's, uh, I, I'm happy to have been able to put that into FNS reports. 
And just before this podcast, I did this ultrasound on a pregnant patient that I really couldn't understand. And it just so happens that last week I got a submission of a molar pregnancy after the transfer of a euploid blastocyst. So I don't know how that's going to turn out in the reviews, but was that it? Am I looking at a molar pregnancy? The entire time I'm looking at this ultrasound, I'm asking myself, I wonder if that's what it is. So I'll keep you posted. I'll bring her back in a week and see what we get. And in the meanwhile, we'll get a HCG value and, and see where that takes us. But I think there's great value in those kinds of case reports and even relatively small case series, as well as, of course, filling in the parts of the science with retrospective analyses and looking at uh, people's experiences. So we're there for uh, all of these reasons. The open access format, of course, makes it uh, very easy to access these articles because you never have to download them. They're only as far as your phone and uh, or your tablet or wherever you are, and there is all of your there's all of your uh, manuscripts. So FNS is uh, FNS reports is a new journal which is a lot briefer than its editor in chief who seems to go on and on. But that's just because I'm so excited about the journal. Dr. Paulson, I suggest you publish your work in FNS reports. <laughs> that's a great idea, Bill. Thank you. So, so clearly, I see there's a trend in publishing to have a family of journals. Uh, Lancet has a family of journals. Human Reproduction has a family of journals. And now Fertility and Serility has a family of journals. No question that you can identify which journal your work best fits into. But isn't there some sort of cascade? Um, in other words, if you put your journal to FNS, would it be considered for the other journals? That's a great question. We often, and, and uh, Rick really identified something that that perplexed us uh, for a long time before uh, we had uh, our wonderful uh, sister journals. Uh, and that was that we were turning away really good work that didn't just quite fit in, uh, in fertility and sterility. So if we find something that we think is, uh, is of, of value, uh, then we will share it with the uh, editors of our sister journals to see if they're interested. And if that's the case, then we will communicate with the author. Perhaps you should consider this journal um, because it might be a wonderful home for that paper. One important point, though, is that these aren't uh, journals that are meant to pick up papers that are not of poor quality. Uh, we give them the same rigorous review that they would get through FNS. And the fact is you, you can be proud to publish in any one of these journals because the quality is still going to be very high. It's that we needed more space to publish the excellent work that exists, not that we have papers that are not of high quality that we're going to publish in these journals. We want to make sure that you can be proud to publish in any one of them. Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. So I just want the, the listeners to be clear on this. So when I'm reviewing a paper as an associate editor or not, if I think, gee, this is an amazing case report, but it's not really well suited for FNS, then often what I will do is I will send a note to Rick and say, hey, this might be better suited for FNS reports. And then I guess, Rick, what I'd love to know is on the back end, how does that then get translated to the author? And if the author gets a notice back stating, consider this for FNS reports, is that like a clue that there's been some back 
awk in communication and that they may have a higher likelihood of, of making it successfully through the editorial process if they get that clue on consider FNS reports? I would say definitely. And uh, I think that's primarily because of people like you, Eve, who really choose the good articles to send to us. So the vast majority of the articles that cascade to us are in fact of that category. And if I get it back and it's already a first revision based on the reviews that came from Fertility and Sterility, we'll just look it over. And uh, if the associate editor and I agree that that has been peer reviewed and it's good enough, it can just go in. Uh, often, obviously, you know, we'll find another a typo someplace in paragraph 14 that we would like to have fixed. But other than that, uh, it, it, it should go in and they do clearly have a higher acceptance rate because they, someone has already looked at, looked at them and, and thought this is probably worthwhile. So thanks for bringing that up. That's a very good point. So the one journal that perhaps doesn't cascade directly to is reviews because, and isn't your journal a little bit different than the other fertility and sterility journals? Yes, we're publishing review articles, and in general, we ask for most of our authors to provide a proposal prior to completing their review. Um, the goal of this proposal is to um, make sure that it would be appropriate for FNS reviews in our readership, and to um, make sure that we, if there are any issues that can be identified before the review is conducted, and hopefully improve the quality and the strength of the review. Uh, so that by the time the author has uh, submitted the actual review article, uh, we know that it will likely be accepted into FNS reviews. I encourage anybody interested in submitting to FNS reviews uh, to go to our website, Fertstert Reviews, and look at uh, what we're First of all, what we're interested in, which are both systematic and comprehensive reviews on a specific topic. Of course, um, what people kind of wonder, what exactly are we looking for? And what I would say is, one, it needs to be novel or, you know, there needs to be a justification for review. Um, for example, we're not really looking for a review article on a semen analysis but we might be interested in novel topics for assessing sperm quality. We also want it to be impartial and balanced and focused and in-depth. So in other words, we don't want it to be on endometriosis and not on IL-6-174GC polymorphism and endometriosis, but potentially on the inheritability and potential genetic or epigenetic pathophysiology of endometriosis. We'd like, of course, to be logical, structured, and clearly written because we want our readership to be able to um, read this in one sitting and find it easy to understand. And of course, it must be up to date. Um, as I mentioned, I encourage our um, anybody interested in drafting a review article and submitting to FNS Reviews to go to our website and to look first at uh, drafting one of these proposals, pulling together proposal and uh, sending it in to us for um, kind of a quick once over. Um, and we will provide feedback to you and let you know whether or not you should move forward. 
but I'll leave it from there in case anybody else has any topics that would like to discuss more about their journals. I just wanted to highlight one of Anne's points, which I think is really important. A lot of uh, potential submitters of articles might worry that, well, gosh, these journals are new and should I be submitting to them? And, you know, are people publishing them? I encourage you, if that's the case, to go to our websites, look at our papers, evaluate, is your paper ideally suited for this journal? We have been successful. We have published manuscripts and now you can evaluate them and you can see whether this is the right journal for you and whether the quality fits the type of quality of manuscript that you'd like to submit. And I encourage you to do that. And I think you'll be excited by just going to the websites and they're all the same for Telstorel Science, for Telstorel Reports, for Telstorel um, Reviews.org for all three, go to any one of them or to all of them, look at the articles. And I think you'll be very proud of what uh, all of us together, you and all of us, have accomplished. So earlier this morning, uh, Kurt, Eve, and I did the FNS on air podcast recording, and one of the articles was talking about um, research integrity and the quality of the literature and how it maybe differs in reproductive journals compared to the top journals uh, in, in medicine. So this is a sort of a high level question. I know as a reviewer and as a, as a researcher, what we can do to try to tackle that, but as editors and chiefs, how do you view that? How do you improve that? What is FNS doing? Start by the fact that there is obligation to uh, register uh, the clinical trials. And that was, I think it was implemented in 2007, if uh, my memory is correct. And uh, basically when we started in the journal, we implemented it immediately. So from the very beginning, as compared to our main competitors uh, in the field. And uh, uh, this is one of the uh, main points that uh, we always look at. Uh, registration, IRB approval, etc. Then if we identify any type of uh, misconduct, uh, we notify the Publications Committee of ASRM. So we as editors don't deal with um, uh, misconduct, but it obviously is our duty to identify any, any type of misconduct. And it's also important to understand that uh, we have uh, very good relationships with our competitors and uh, we before the, the pandemic, of course, we used to meet uh, twice a year, uh, once at ESHRE in July and the other one at ASRM. And uh, with all the confidentiality and privacy, but uh, we exchanged information and we were able to identify, uh, let's say, hot uh, uh, points, hot problems, and perhaps some uh, places where um, papers were published with, um, with um, perhaps uh, some um, issues uh, regarding, regarding scientific integrity. So um, we and others are doing our best uh, to get rid of all the uh, scientific uh, misconduct. Yes, we can also point out that fortunately within the FNS group, we also work with ASRM and have the publications committee. 
and the Publications Committee has worked hard to identify and follow up on any issues that can come up with regard to scientific misconduct or any other issues. So we actually focus on trying to be sure that the articles that are published are articles that the readership can count on and that those who publish in it can feel comfortable that their articles are of high quality and surrounded by other articles that are high quality and high ethical quality as well. So I would attack sort of the part of the question that says, what can you do as editor in chief? And I would say that still the biggest errors or, or misconduct, if you will, in the conduct of science, I think is done out of ignorance. And that is that the conclusion is not supported by the data. And, and often the data are in there. And as you read it, you can actually make a conclusion. It just happens to be different from the conclusion that the authors put down as their primary endpoint. And this, I think, is where the editorial process can and should help. Uh, all of us get enthusiastic about our latest hypothesis. I know that I do. It's very easy to get swept along and say, look at that. Oh, I know this is true. And here's the data. And it proves it. And of course, it doesn't. And so this is the point of peer review. And this is the point of saying, the work you did is great, but I think you need to consider it from this particular angle because that is the more correct interpretation of the information that you have. That is the point of peer review, and that is the role that we as editors-in-chief can play in helping the flow of science. The one thing that I that I think that authors get tripped up on, and, and uh, it's as Tony says, it's because it's so recent, is uh, registration of, of clinical trials. IRBs are, I mean, pretty ingrained in what we do at this point, so it's pretty unusual to get a paper that doesn't have an IRB uh, uh, correctly applied. Um, and then scientific misconduct is scientific misconduct. You know, people people kind of understand when somebody fabricates data or something like that, that that's a very, very, very bad thing. But the um, registration of, cl of uh, uh, clinical trials is something that's that um, kind of trips authors up a bit. Uh, and so we still get um, papers that say things like, well, you know, this, this uh, subject was part of the clinical trial before, the, uh, before it was registered. And we have to say, we're sorry, um, but we're, we can't, you know, put that paper through peer review. And the reason is, is that um, it's all about uh, ethicality and transparency. So, if you are doing human subjects research in a prospective way before you tell the world about it, then that, that's an opportunity for, for you know, bad things happening that the world doesn't know about. Um, and it can be the most, it can be the best trial, you know, for the best purposes, the most um, innocent mistake, you know, some coordinator just accidentally uh, uh, put the, you know, the, the, um, uh, first patient in before uh, uh, entering into the database, but the fact of the matter is, is that it was not transparent at that point in time. So we we've been throughout our tenure, uh, we've been very very strict about that. And so, kind of like as a suggestion to authors, if you have an idea that you are going to be conducting a study, enter it into a clinical trial database. It can be any clinical trial database. There are many, but just enter it. It's easier to like, if you don't do the trial, pull it, than it is if you enter it after the first subject, because then you really limit the number of publications that you can put this in. And in fact, you're engaging in, in uh, behavior that's not 
that's not completely ethical. And one one final point or the final line of defense, of course, is all of you, our readership, that all of you can go on to Fertility and Sterility Dialogues, and if you feel that there's some issue with the manuscript, please share it. It may be an, an honest mistake. It may not. We don't know. We're going to, you know, we go through the review process, but it's certainly possible that something could be out there. And if you have an opinion on this, that's the purpose of FNS Dialogues, both positive and negative, to share or to provide insight or background uh, to add to the experience for all those interested in these manuscripts. Another point I would like to add is uh, cross-check. Because this is uh, something quite new and people are not used to it and, and uh, get uh, back many surprises. Today, <clears throat> when a manuscript arrives to our office, we can immediately find out whether the authors have uh, copy-paste uh, part of the manuscripts. Sometimes, I would say many times, uh, they copy-paste from their own work, especially the section Material and Methods. Uh, but some other, some other times, uh, people take parts from other manuscripts and just copy-paste. And, and, and so it's important to realize that uh, we keep an eye on this, uh, and, uh, and, and, and this should be transmitted to the young people who start to write papers, and they should forget about uh, copy-pasting, because it's not a good exercise for scientific publication. Thanks, everybody. We have an opportunity. We have five editors online here, and I've heard a couple times that the peer review process is the most integral in getting a good paper. Um, I've had the privilege of receiving a lot of reviews, and I've re read other people's reviews. I've found things that are helpful and not helpful. I'll start the conversation with the most unhelpful review I got was, was a basic science paper where they sacrificed the mice to see about the gene editing, and the, and the reviewer said, what do you mean sacrifice? Did you have like a Viking funeral? That's an unhelpful review, um, but why don't we hear what kind of stories you have that you think were good or bad reviews so you can help our audience with this. I, I would love to start. I think one of the challenges is if you are selected to review and you simply do not have the time, please just say no and say no quickly so that we can move forward and not waste the time of the uh, person who's waiting to hear back from on their manuscript. If you say yes, please review it quickly instead of waiting till the 14th day. And, and regardless, if you're going to review, please don't submit a review that says, uh, great study or um, uh, didn't make sense, I don't understand. Uh, these types of reviews aren't helpful to the reviewer. They're not helpful to us. We can't provide any additional feedback. We need specific comments. So, so it's really important. We, we love reviewers. We, you know, we benefit from the review, we very much appreciate all the reviewers, but our biggest challenge uh, in trying to make sure to move papers forward for the benefit of both the readership and the uh, individual scientists groups that are working is that the reviews be helpful as far as moving the point forward. And then just one other quick point, the goal of the review really is to improve outcomes rather than um, trying to nail the paper and harm it. So if you have something positive to say, that's tremendously helpful. Even if you think the study can't be salvaged, at least point out why. 
So I just want to throw in, um, we're looking for reviewers to review our review articles, um, as strange as that sounds. And one of the wonderful, amazing things is that you may feel a little bit intimidated when you're asked to review a review article because you may have plenty of experience at kind of reviewing scientific articles, but how do you review a review article? Well, um, the great news is if you choose to review for FNS reviews, we provide you with some questions to think about and some guidelines and um, sort of pathways as to how to explore and do this review process. So um, just want to encourage everybody to consider um, reviewing for a review article, especially to FNS reviews, um, because I think you're going to learn a little bit about conducting reviews. So don't be intimidated and say yes. So I like to think of the best reviewers as those that almost conduct an independent journal club. So think about when you do journal club as a fellow, you talk about the research question. Is it a good question? Is it well designed? Does it contribute to the literature? What exists already out there in the literature? If this is just one of a hundred other studies that say the same thing, it's probably not very novel and may not be worthy of inclusion into this journal. Doesn't mean that there isn't a role for it elsewhere, but what we're really looking for are innovative new papers that drive the field of reproductive medicine forward. The other thing that you want to really look at when I review a paper, I almost universally go straight to the materials and methods first. I mean, background is lovely. It gives, it sets the stage for the question. But the meat of the review should really be focused on the materials and methods and then the results section. So do the authors appropriately, do they use the appropriate tools to answer the question that they've set out to ask? And do the results that are reported, are they backed by the data that's presented? And I think that the best papers that are the best reviews of papers are really those that focus. I, Yes, I think it's important to know that there should be a comma on line 14, but I think it's much more important to understand why wasn't a GEE performed to look for lack of independence between cycles from the same woman. And I think that, you know, the best papers and the best reviews are really those that attack the methods and the results and try to properly frame the question that's being asked and to utilize the tools that that help to answer those questions. I'd like to throw in one last point specifically to our reviewers. I think one challenge that a lot of people worry about is whether they're qualified to review the manuscript. Remember, when you read the journal, our hope is that you can understand every single one of the articles, that the articles themselves are clear enough so that you, with your expertise, regardless of if you have any specific expertise in that area, can understand it. So if you get an article and your expertise is in area A and the article's in area B, you're a perfectly fine reviewer. If you can't understand it, then the readership won't be able to understand it either. And we need to know that so that we can get those points across to help them to help the uh, investigators to clarify these points and make it more clear for the readership. We don't want to end up with a bunch of silos of specific knowledge and a specific jargon that make it very difficult to understand one article and the next. So I think what you're hearing is either all of us current or former associate editors exhibiting PTSD from uh, really uh, bad reviews that then basically leave it up to you to review the article. 
Uh, I've also had enough reviews where I felt that wasn't I wasn't sure whether the reviewer had actually read the paper or had understood what the endpoint was. For that reason, I actually put a template onto the uh, into the review into the editorial manager uh, reviews for the reviewers to review for FNS reports. And unfortunately, some of the reviewers I think are offended by the fact that I have ten sequential questions that say uh, just briefly tell me what the uh, the primary endpoint was and the secondary endpoint. I think it's important that the author understand that you read it and you got it and you understood exactly what the paper was about. And now when you talk about it, and here's your major and minor points, that they are in fact related to the, the correct paper. And I would expound on what Bill said. Yeah, the review that says, great paper, I have no idea what this paper means. Then of course there's a review on the other end, where the review is actually longer than the original article. And that is, uh, you know, a very, a pre, very much appreciated. You can tell this is a huge effort, and I feel bad for the author who then has to go through and read uh, seven or eight pages of reviews. But that's not necessary. Uh, think to yourself, uh, just like Eve said, uh, is this uh, was this well designed, and was the conclusion supported by the data? What else did they have looked at, perhaps? I think a really common theme is that the intent of the peer review process is once the decision has been made that this paper has some value, has something to offer, and should be published in the journal, the entire intent of the peer review process is to make the paper better. And that may take several revisions, but all of that is good. All of that is in the spirit of getting information out that uh, that physicians and scientists can use that is valid. I'll make one other comment here that remember when you review a paper, there are often two places to review. One is um, comments that will be shared to the author, but there's also a place to share comments directly to the editor that are private. So sometimes an author will get reviews back that seem very easy to respond to, but in the comments of the editor is, this paper is, you know, uh, not of interest or is not novel, and it might not be reflected in those kind of reviews. So I wanted to say that, and also ask the authors, um, I'm sorry, ask the editors, isn't your job to adjudicate some of that? Don't you sometimes get some angry authors on your hands and, and say, uh, you know, why isn't my paper in the journal? Yes. Always. Always. We are the most hated people in the society. Not because the most. no to some of our <laughs> friends. <laughs> I, I just wanted to add, uh, because some people are reluctant to um, uh, to review manuscripts, but I, I, I want to highlight the fact that uh, to review papers, uh, for me, is an academic duty. So this is something that we must do as people working uh, in universities, in, the, in academia, and a perfect uh, training model for the young people. I was just going to say, if I can throw in one comment for the person who has had their manuscript reviewed, I think uh, sometimes our wording comes across as a little harsh. It sounds like your paper is not acceptable in its current form. And when you read that, your immediate response is, oh, no, they hated my paper. That's typically not the case. It's typically trying to get across that we like your paper. It's almost there. Just, you know, work with us on these last few comments. 
and then we're happy with it. But don't worry about that first sentence because it can come across as very intimidating. I learned from Luigi Mastroianni, one of my old mentors, when he was editor in Fertility and Israelity, and he, he always signed his letters of reject when people were arguing with him as just simply, you may be right, and leave it at that. <laughs> well, I think if they're totally not interested in the article, they're not going to write much. So it's a compliment when people invest time to um, put their energy and um, into review. And so I think people... If you're receiving review and you feel like it's very in-depth and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling that perhaps um, they don't like it, I would say no. If they didn't like it, they wouldn't have invested the time. So it's a real honor, actually, for a reviewer to spend that time and give you that feedback. I just want to chime in here with a comment that I think our reviewers are really the unsung heroes in the review process. I am continuously impressed by the work that is put forth by the reviewers, by the tremendous um, impact that the reviewers have in making these papers better. And I love seeing the papers that I that came across my desk that were then subsequently improved through the through the reviewers and the smart comments that they made. It, it gives me great pleasure to see those papers in the journal in the final form and in a much better place than they were originally. And I think that the reviewers are blinded, and so they don't get the credit that they deserve, but the heart and soul of this journal is really that review process, and the reviewers who mold and shape those papers into what they are in print, I think is just astounding. So congratulations to the three new editors-in-chief. You're looking to build your journals, both your editorial board and your associate editors and your readership. Tell me what you're looking for and how people can get involved and what you're looking for in somebody that gets involved. A really good attitude, I think, above all else. The work actually speaks for itself, and I wanted to follow up on what Eve said about the reviewers being the unsung heroes of the editorial process. It is also, to be an ad hoc reviewer, that is, the entry level into the editorial process. And you may find that you're a lot better at it than you thought. And uh, I felt every time I did a review that I learned something from it, not just from the material that was in the article, but also in the thought process that you put into it. And eventually you get better at it. Your reviews will be read very carefully. And your reviews will be judged by the editor-in-chief very carefully. And if you're a good reviewer, you will be asked to join the editorial board. Do not think that you labor in anonymity. I remember many years ago reviewing for fertility and sterility. I thought I labored in anonymity. I was always surprised when Roger Kempers would come up to me at the annual cocktail party and said, I really like your reviews. I, I assumed he was being polite, but I get it now. You People really do read him, and they know who you are. So... That's it. Have a good attitude. Be thorough. Do good reviews. You may find you really like it, and you will percolate in this meritocracy of the editorial process. It's really interesting, and it's a really integral, very important component of what we do as scientists moving the field forward. Let me point out that the purpose of all of our journals is for you, is for the readership, is for the society. That's why we exist. And that's why we've expanded. And that's why we have all of the additional offshoots, including this podcast. 
The whole point is that we're trying to provide a product that better serves you. So how do we know what the next move is that's going to help you? You tell us, you let us know, you participate in some way, you contact us, you let us know, hey, here's something that I think would really help. So one aspect that we did early on with FNS Science is one aspect or one point that somebody brought up is, you know, what is the, how does my science fit into the great scheme of all the science and reproductive medicine? So what I started asking for is retrospectives of people talking about uh, things that we're all familiar with. How did they come about? What happened? Not just a historical point of the uh, papers that led to it, but what was going on? What were people thinking at those times? Um, and then we have somebody who looks into the future and kind of says, well, if my science were in fact true, how would it change human care and human health? We try to do those things so that it puts each manuscript kind of in, in a perspective of why it's valuable. But if you find there's something else that would be valuable to you as a readership, please let us know. We are easily accessible. We're very easy to contact. So if you send a, an email to any one of us, we will all uh, share it if it fits in one or more journals uh, effectively. So please let us know how we can better serve you. Well, I would just uh, like to say about getting a talk on the subject, which is getting involved in FNS reviews. Of course, our editorial board is a little bit different in the sense that they do, um, their main purpose is to review these proposals. But of course, like all the other journals, really the pathway to getting involved and uh, with the journal is to submit um, and then also to do reviews and by the quality of those reviews, obviously then um, leads to further involvement with the journal. So um, very similar to other things like the other uh, journals, but I just wanted to stress that our editorial board is a little bit different, but I think a fun group to be part of and an incentive to provide good reviews. I have a question for Craig and Tony. We, we've talked about all these incredible things that uh, has happened in FNS in your terms uh, as editors in chief. Uh, the world's first online journal club, the dialogue, three new journals, the impact factor going way up. But I'm curious, what did you find was the the hardest part or the most challenging part of the job that those of us who are on the outside would would never see or never know about? And conversely, what was the most rewarding to you during this time? So I think the most challenging was uh, was saying no to people that we really care about. Um, you know that that they really Everyone has so much passion uh, around their work, which, which uh, is, and you know, it's. I mean, it's part of who we are and what we do. But when someone, say, you know, high up in the society, gets very passionate, it's hard to maintain that. You know, no, <laughs> that we're sorry, but no. Um, that's the most challenge, or it was the most challenging part uh, for me. The most gratifying part is twofold. One is working with incredible people just incredible people i mean it, it's our field is is so much fun because the people who are in it are so creative and brilliant and um and communicative and you know and really really good people that 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 for me is 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 the big umbrella pleasure but the the personal pleasure is i have a new bff and that's tony pelliser Tony and I really didn't know each other before we became co-editors-in-chief, uh, and now he is one of my closest friends in the world. Um, and that is a gift that, you know, I was given by the society that uh, is just extraordinary. 
the same here. I mean, I, when when I was told that uh, I may share with somebody else the the position as editor in chief, I asked, uh, and who is uh, that person? And it turned out that it was an urologist. So I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> Last thing I need in my life, but uh, yeah, um, for us, I mean, for me it was fantastic. We became very, very close friends. Uh, we met uh, many times uh, in so many places, and uh, uh, for me, I mean, uh, what I take uh, home apart from um, many enemies that we made rejecting papers is. Um, Craig's uh, friendship, but that will be with me for all my life. So we're technically out of time. Anybody want to say anything before they go? Thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Micah. Thank you, Eve. It's been fantastic. Really appreciate all that you do for all of us. Thank you so much. I like how those thanks. Uh, this is a, just a really wonderful group of people, and it's a pleasure to work with you all. I really appreciate that. We'll uh, we'll see what we can whittle this one down into. Get rid of my breathing and uh, make it make us all sound intelligent. <laughs> Thank you Thanks all. Thanks again. That was great. Good seeing everyone. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.